Good evening and welcome. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and thank you for being here for a very, very special Writers Live series edition. I also want to thank all of you for another reason, too. Tonight, you are sitting on cushioned Pratt Library chairs. They are not rented. We don't have to take them back, and we have plenty more. So this is our first, or you're breaking them in, because we knew that we would have such a wonderful um, crowd tonight. And with the 2012 presidential year, it's very appropriate that we kick off this year's uh, series with a great author who we think knows a thing or two about presidential politics, the anchor of PBS's NewsHour, Mr. Jim Lair. You may clap. Like you, I'm very interested to hear, and we will have a question and answer um, section, to hear his insights about the uh, presidential candidates and, of course, to talk about his new book, Tension City, Inside the Presidential Debates from Kennedy Nixon to Obama McCain. And if you haven't had a chance to purchase your copy, we have Ivy Bookstore here tonight, and you can have it, and Mr. Lair will sign your books. A special thank you to our partners for tonight, Maryland Public Television. They have been wonderful, and I'd like to welcome the members of their boards of directors. If they're here, please know that we appreciate this cooperation, and also the members of the Board of Trustees and Directors of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Now, before we continue, I have to take this opportunity to give a quick plug to a couple of other programs that are coming up and I think you might be interested in because we are getting pretty provocative. Author and radio host Michael Eric Dyson is the featured speaker for our Book Lovers Breakfast. And then on March the 8th, the host of MSNBC's Hardball, Chris Matthews, will be here. And on Saturday, I know... You should have heard what we've been saying about that. And on Saturday, April 14th, we just found out that the wonderful, wonderful biographer, Walter Isaacson, will be here for our City Lit Festival. And that is going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing. So you can look on our website. This is also, from what I understand, the first of, we hope, a series of video broadcast that will, you will then be able to get on YouTube of the talks that are here after they're shown, so that. Also there's, before I introduce um, the person who will introduce tonight's uh, speaker, I have to take a point of uh, special privilege. There aren't many times that you get a chance to do this, and I think this audience is the perfect audience to do this with. I mentioned that the Ivy Bookstore is uh, selling our books. And in fact, they have been such wonderful partners with us over the years. In fact, some of the staff members, we even forget that they're not our staff members and they, we tell them to do things and they do things and Greg and all that. So we've had a very close relationship. So I have to ask Mrs. Darielle Linehan to please stand up and thank her for keeping... Thank you. Thank you for keeping the literary arts alive, keeping books alive, and making Baltimore truly the city that reads. And also to welcome Mr. Ed Berlin, the person who is going to carry the torch, and he's been following, he knows where the bathroom is too now tonight. He, we're breaking him in. And thank you for keeping that, that going. We really appreciate it. So, Tonight, I mean, we're just really special tonight because tonight we have a seasoned journalist, 
with over 30 years of experience. He joined Maryland Public Television in 1991 and has become one of the most respected and I think recognizable journalists on the local and even national public affairs scene. He is the host of MPT's Direct Connection, State Circle, and Your Money and Business. So please welcome Mr. Jeff Salkin. Dr. Hayden, thank you very much. I promise this will be a very brief introduction because, A, my voice is going, and, two, uh, Jim Lehrer doesn't need a whole lot of introduction, so I will offer a couple of thoughts and start with a highly abbreviated biography, if that's okay, sir. Jim started in journalism after serving in the Marine Corps. He was a newspaper reporter and columnist in Texas before joining the then-new Dallas public television station KERA. That led to a management position at PBS in Washington and ultimately to the McNeil-Lehrer Report. The program is now known as the PBS NewsHour. Jim appears often on Fridays to moderate the political discussion with Shields and Brooks. Mr. Lehrer has been honored with numerous awards for journalism, including Emmy Awards, the National Humanities Medal, the Fred Friendly First Amendment Award, and the George Foster Peabody Broadcast Award, to name just a few. Jim has written two memoirs and three plays, and in his spare time, 20 novels. His newest nonfiction book, as you know, is Tension City, about presidential debates. Jim has been to Tension City 11 times, moderating at least one of the debates in the last six presidential elections. And that brings me to why Jim is the top choice for that job. What we have today is a rapidly fragmenting media universe. The easy way for someone to stand out among all the cable shows and limitless websites is to be the loudest and most outrageously opinionated voice. That, of course, is the opposite of Jim Lehrer's approach. A few years ago, on one of my local programs at MPT, we did a segment on media bias. We interviewed a professor, I forget the university, who had done an exhaustive study of media bias, looking at every newscast on every network, breaking it down by reporter and anchor, and he had comments about everybody, whether they were left or right or somewhere beyond. After all the criticism of the major networks, I asked him the question, well, is there anyone out there that you think hits the ball down the middle of the fairway? And of course he said, Jim Lehrer. That commitment will always be in the DNA of the PBS NewsHour, and it also trickles down to newsrooms at at local stations like ours. So for that, we say thank you to Jim Blair, and I hope you will all join me in extending him a warm welcome. Thank you. I do have one bias that I will announce right here at the beginning, and that is I am absolutely uh, in favor of everything that can be done to support your and everybody else's local independent bookstores. And I, I am a particular fan of the Ivy Store, which is the cream of the crop, uh, not only in Baltimore, but maybe in every place but Kansas. <laughs> never mind, never mind. Anyhow, I'm serious about that. It is uh, extremely important that you all, you all clearly have some knowledge. You might even read books a lot and appreciate books or you wouldn't be at this event. You wouldn't be a supporter of the Pratt uh, Library. I would urge you to share that support with Ivy and all other independent bookstores uh, if and when you have an opportunity to do so. Coming to Baltimore for me is like coming to a mecca of uh, professional nostalgia in some ways, but a little more than nostalgia. 
I was telling the story earlier, uh, and I've told it here before, in fact, when I was here at the library. Uh, Judy, when was that? That was 2005. I'm going to tell the story again. For those of you who were here at 2005, take a break. <laughs> but pay attention a little bit, even if you're here at 2005. So I'm going to tell the story a lot better today than I did the first time. In the 1950s, I worked as a ticket agent in the Continental Trailways bus depot in a place called Victoria, Texas, which is halfway between Houston and Corpus. Now, trust me here, you've got to hang with me on this story, okay? Uh, it's halfway between Houston and Corpus Christi on the Texas Gulf Coast. I, was, I worked there, and that's relevant, and I'll make it even more relevant later, because I was going to a little junior college in Victoria, Texas at the time, a college called Victoria College. To say it was a small school is to put a new meaning on the word small. Uh, I, was, I became editor of the newspaper. In addition to working at Bus Depot, I was also editor of the newspaper. And the way I became editor of the newspaper at Victoria College is when I signed up, it cost $40 to go to this junior college for a whole year. And when I signed up, went to the office to sign up, I only had $10. And they said, oh, well, okay, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it before the end of the year. And then I said to the woman behind this, the uh, counter there, I said, look, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in a career. I didn't say journalism, because journalism was not a word that was used at that time. As I told some folks early, earlier, it was all about being on a, a newspaper man or a newspaper woman. Nobody used journalism, and certainly nobody used the word media. The word media meant some kind of very strange, exotic, uh, venereal disease. So those kind of... <laughs> Those words didn't mean anything. Anyhow, I said I, wanted, I was interested in being a newspaper man. I wanted to work on the newspaper. Do you have a newspaper at this college? And she said, oh, yes. And she gave me the name of the professor who was the faculty advisor. And I looked this guy up. I found him sitting behind his desk. He was a history teacher. And I said, I'm Jimmy Charles Lara, and I would like to work on the newspaper. The newspaper was called Jolly, the Jolly Roger, as in pirates and all that stuff. And uh, I said, I'd like to work on the newspaper. And this guy he had the biggest, got the biggest smile on his face. And he stood up and he leaned across the desk and he shook his hand, shook, stuck his hand and shook mine and said, congratulations, you're the new editor. <laughs> and it turned out not only was I the editor, I was the sole member of the staff of the Jolly Roger. And I ended up writing every story every news story, every sports story. I wrote every editorial. I had a column. I, I edited my own stuff, of course. And then I laid out the pages. And then I took them down to the local daily newspaper, which had a printing plant. And they printed the Jolly Roger. And I would bring them back to the campus, which is maybe 15 blocks away. And then I would distribute them to my 300 fellow and sister students at uh, Victoria College. But to give you a feel for how, how big the school was, my first big banner headline story under my editorship, under my full editorial control, was a bold headline, a banner headline across the top of the page, VC, VC as in Victoria College, VC enrollment soars to 320. And that's where, that's, uh, that's where it was. But why this is relevant to tonight and to the Pratt Library and to Baltimore is because of this thing that I was doing in the newspaper and everybody, all of my fellow and sister students and faculty members, everybody knew that what I was doing was saving money working in a bus depot eight hours a day in the evening uh, so I could go to the University of Missouri School of Journalism for the last two years. And uh, everybody knew that. Uh, but anyhow, I walked into the library. And the library, as I said to Judy a while ago, the library is about the size of the boardroom upstairs. In other words, it would be this section right here. Very small room. Very few, build, very few books. The librarian 
name was, uh, actually I said Brown earlier, but her name was Lois Parker. I remembered it correctly a moment ago. Her name was Lois Parker. I barely knew her. She came over to me. She knew who I was. She came over to me and she said, Jimmy, um, I understand you're interested in a career in uh, as a, uh, working on a newspaper, being a newspaper reporter. And I said, yes, ma'am, that's true. And she said, have you ever heard of H.L. Mencken? And I said, no, ma'am, I've never heard of H.L. Mencken. Who, who is he? And she said, come with me. So I went to her the corner of the library in the bottom shelf. She pulled out a book, and it was a book called The Disturber of the Peace by William Manchester. It's a biography of H.L. Mencken. And then next to that were three or four other books, including The American Language and a couple other books by H.L. Mencken. And she said, read those books, and it will help you to get from here to there, meaning there, meaning a, a career in journalism, or she didn't say journalism, but at a career working on a newspaper. And I read Disturber of the Peace, and I read the American language, and I became an H.L. Mencken freak. I mean, he was my, he was my hero. Remember all the things that Mencken, and of course, when I was here before, in 2005, my wife Kate, who's also a novelist, was here with me, and one of the great treats is that we went to the Mencken Room. And to me, it was like going to, uh, uh, to a chapel. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing, because one of the th- great things about Mencken, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody in this room knows everything that Mencken ever said, but one of the things that, and I know a lot of them, a lot of things he said and wrote myself, and I'll never forget, but uh, one, of the, one of the things I always remember is that just remember one thing. Everybody has to have somebody to look down on. And he was explaining why people said bad things about people. And he said, the guy at the very bottom, he's got somebody. I don't know who the hell it is, but he's got somebody. <laughs> but he said, he said uh, a lot of things. And, of course, the disturber. Anyhow, to make the, the point about Mencken, Mencken and his spirit uh, is still in me and has been with me since that day in the library at Victoria College. Now, in terms of Baltimore, there's one other thing that I have to tell you, um, and, and it has to do with the bus depot. The, it has to do with why I'm here today. In other words, the reason I'm here today is because I worked in journalism, I worked on television, and I moderated some presidential debates, and I wrote a book about them. Right? Right. Well, the first time I ever was paid money to speak into a microphone was at the bus depot, the Continental Trailways bus depot in Victoria, Texas. (laughs) And I was, the reason I was paid money to do that, of course, because one of my duties as a ticket agent was to call the buses on the PA system. (laughs) And here's what I did. May I have your attention, please? This is your last call for Continental Trailways, 8.10 p.m. Silversides Air Condition through Liner to Houston, now leaving from Lane 1 next to the building. For Inez, Edna, Ganado, Louise, L. Campo, Pierce, Wharton, Hungerford, Kendleton, Beasley, Rosenberg, Richmond, Sugarland, Stafford, Missouri City, and Houston. All aboard! Don't forget your baggage, please. Connecting in Houston (laughs) for Huntsville, Buffalo, Corsicana, Dallas, Wichita, Kansas City, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Columbus, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore. All aboard. Don't forget your baggage, please. Now, ladies and gentlemen, supporters of the Enoch Pratt. Did I say Enoch right? Enoch Pratt Central Library in Baltimore. I am here to state without equivocation that Chris Matthews cannot do a bus call like that. (laughs) And when he comes, you should feel free to point that out to him. (laughs) Let um, Let me tell you a little bit about my book, Tension City. 
Uh, I'm not going to tell you too much, because then you won't have to read the book, see. I'm going to tell you just enough. It's going to make you want to, to uh, cohabitate with the folks at Ivy and, uh, and buy the book. Tension City, well, first of all, let me tell you the title. I, I made the decision three years ago or more that I was going to finally ready to write a book about my debate experiences and all of that. And just for the record, part of that decision was that I wasn't going to do any more presidential debate. So if you are holding your breath for me to moderate Obama versus Perry in the fall, <laughs> or whatever, you can take a deep breath. Forget it. I'm not going to... When I made the decision to write the book, I decided I'm not going to do any more presidential, uh, presidential debates. I, I, I gave at the office. I've done it. And I have the psychic score, scars uh, to show for it. And that brings me to, to the title, Tension City. Let me tell you where the, one of the, the, the privileges I have had, and I use that word directly and with great meaning, the privilege of moderating 11 presidential and vice presidential debates, that's a huge privilege. But I also had an additional privilege, which is kind of icing on the cake, huge icing on the cake, was I've had, I've had the opportunity to do one-on-one -on -one interviews with all but three of all of the people who have participated as a candidate in these televised presidential debates and vice presidential debates. And that's been really something. Over a period of 20 years, I did them. They began, first of all, it was going to be a kind of an oral history project for the debate commission. And then we decided to do a documentary. McNeil Air Productions did, and it was broadcast on PBS. And then I did some more interviews for the book and whatever. And as I say, all but three of them uh, uh, I, I was able to, uh, able to interview. Uh, at any rate, one of them was George H., W. Bush. I spent a long time with him, and he hated, I'll tell you a little more about him in a minute, but he hated these debates. And he, he came, when I interviewed him, it was about seven, seven years after he'd left the White House, and it was a, a sit-down interview, you know, on tape for, a, a, you know, with a, two cameras, one for him, one for me, and uh, just the two of us. And um, uh, at any rate, uh, I asked him some hard-hitting question like, uh, what were they like, you know, Mr. President? <laughs> and he said, oh, those high-visibility things, Jim, they are attention city. Is that fine? Great. Now, to the title. I, from the time I started working on this book, which was about three years ago, the title was, when I first had the, the empty computer screen, and, uh, you know, you used to have empty pieces of paper, but an empty computer screen, and I typed in the title. The title was Moderator by Billy Bob Wawa. That was the title. For two and a half, three years, the title was Moderator. And we finally got, my publisher's Random House, had this fabulous editor. We got to the final conclusion. The book was in manuscript form, ribbon around it, literally almost ready to be sent, what they used to call send it, send it to lead, meaning print it. And I got a call from my editor in New York, a wonderful man named Bob Loomis, and he says, Jim, uh, we have been talking. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> and I said, what is it, Bob? He said, well, we're not sure moderator is a really good title for the book. And I said, well, that's just too bad, because moderator is the title. <laughs> he said, just calm down a minute. Bob is my friend, and he, he and I have worked on eight books together. And, and I, he, said, I, he, he said, just calm down, just, just listen to it. Let me, let me ask you one question. I said, okay, go ahead, ask me one question. Here was his question. Jim, would you buy a book with a title, moderator on it? <laughs> I said, okay, I'll give it some thought. I'll see if what I can come up with. And then I remembered this Tension City quote. It was in the book. It was in the manuscript. And uh, so then I called him back in about, I don't know, 30, I checked it with my wife, Kate. I checked everything with my wife, Kate. I said, baby, how about Tension City? She said, go. So I called... Uh, 
uh, Loomis and Random House, and I said, how about Tension City? He said, go. So it became Tension City. And I must say, in, in retrospect, it's a hell of a, be- a, hell of a better title than, than moderator, because Tension City really does sum up what it's all about. Tension, not forget the city part. Uh, tension is what these debates are all about. And that's essentially what I've written about in the book, about my own uh, uh, tension-filled moments as a moderator. But it's not just the moderator, and it's not just the candidates. Uh, it's everybody involved, from the person who runs the teleprompter, the person who runs the sound, the person, everybody involved is at the highest level of tension because there are no other events in the course of a presidential election that are more critical to the outcome as perceived. Hundreds of millions of people watch these debates. And you can go through, and I have in the book, chapter and verse, on where a debate, a particular thing happened or didn't happen that caused people to think certain things. And the reason they're so important, and once it's obvious, these debates happen in late September, early October. And by then, and I went back and checked this when I was working on the book, in most cases, over 90% of the people, by the time you get to that phase of the presidential debates, over 90% of the voters who are people are going to vote have already decided for whom they're going to vote or are leaning strongly for one candidate or the other. So, so why do so many people watch the debates? Because it's the only time, the only time in a campaign where you have the candidates on the same stage at the same time talking about the same things. It's a comparative exercise, not so much about substance. In other words, if you care deeply about whether Social Security should be in a lockbox, you've already heard that debate. You've already made a decision about either you're for him or against him or him or her or whatever based on, on what you've heard or read uh, in the campaign. So what it's really about and what it, it, why they're so important, it is everybody who watches those debates is taking the measure of the candidates as a potential president of the United States. Because even though you may not like Billy Bob or Sammy Sue, and you're, not going, to, you're going to vote for Billy Bob and not Sammy Sue, you still want to know about Sammy Sue because Sammy Sue might end up being the president of the United States, and that means you. So you may, at least it'll help you make a decision whether you're going to have to move to Mexico or somewhere. <laughs> but it's, it's, and what it has to do with, can you imagine that person sitting behind a desk in the Oval Office, making a decision about, say, sending Americans into harm's way, reacting to another 9-11 type thing, another Katrina. And everybody understands, and certainly everybody who's thought about it for more than about 30 seconds realizes that these presidential campaigns and this one is no different. The one, the one I'm talking about, the 2012 one, by the way. You do know that that one's going on, right? Yeah. It's all about, presidential elections are all about the unexpected. But it's never said. I mean, the arguments are about what, what Sammy C. did, you know, during his or her early life or said or did or whatever, what, what the positions are and whatever. But it's really the presidency, for instance, Barack Obama, the current president of the United States, has devoted every waking moment of concern just about. His presidency is now locked in to what's happened to the economy in the financial world. It barely came up during the campaign. It came out of nowhere in September of 2008. George W. Bush... George W. Bush's presidency has forever, will forever be known as the 9-11 presidency and the Iraq presidency, two things that never even came up during the campaign. And that's true of every president. Uh, not, for instance, <laughs> Bill Clinton, uh, I, talked to, uh, the, I talked to Bill Clinton about you know, one-on-one about presidential debates, and if he had his way, he and I would still be talking about it. But that's Bill Clinton. 
But Clinton said, he didn't say this to me in that, in that uh, interview, but he said it many times, his only regret about his presidency is he never had a real crisis so he could show what he really could do. And, I mean, that's the way, that's what it's, and, and every one of those hundreds of millions of people who are watching those debates, including all of you here, and me, all of us, we're watching to get, take that kind of, what, is, what do you think he might, what do you think he or she might do? If this happens, that happens. That's what I'm saying. All presidencies are about the unexpected. Now, but these debates, a few things about them. And uh, are we going to have time to take questions? Uh, okay. Uh, let me, there, are, there is going to be time for questions uh, here in a moment if I shut up uh, uh, leave, leave enough time. So, but let me give you some guidelines for your questions so you won't waste a lot of time on questions that, that I won't answer. And here are my guidelines. Number one, I'm not a pundit. Okay? Guideline number one. Guideline number two, I do not handle criticism well. <laughs> so think of, think, think, think of your questions. But at any rate, these, these, uh, the, 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 the debates are so tension-filled and so critical because... Because it's about the measure of the individual, it's almost, for instance, I did a long interview recently or a conversation recently, not for television, but for a, a big event uh, after, for, with Bill Gates, who was, uh, after he had left uh, his job as Secretary of Defense. And uh, I asked, I said, uh, Mr. Secretary, you uh, served under eight presidents, and I asked him some really terrific question like, what is there any prevailing quality or anything like that, that that you noticed or, you know, some, some, something really, really superb like that. And he, without, without a second's hesitation, he said, temperament. Being a president of the United States is all about temperament. And that's the one thing you want to know about. That's the one thing you can look for. And, and, and that's what, that's why these uh, debates are so important. But let me tell you a couple of stories. They're in the book. Uh, but about when substance didn't have anything to do with what uh, happened in a debate and the outcome of a debate. One of my favorite stories, uh, again, has to do with George H.W. Bush. And he looked at his watch. You remember the famous watch incident? 1992, three-way debate, Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ross Perot. It was, fortunately, I was not moderating that debate. Carol Simpson was. It was in uh, Richmond. And it was a, quote, town hall meeting debate. There was an opening shot. The candidates were sitting, like she's standing here talking to the audience. And behind her were the three candidates sitting on stools. And they, of course, had a big opening shot. She's talking, and the candidates were behind. And, and he, kept, he looked at his watch seven times. George H.W. Uh, Bush did. And, of course, the world came down around him. You know, he's disconnected. You know, my God, he's there. La, 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 la. They really beat up on him. And so when I interviewed him in my interview seven years later, I hear again another hard-hitting question. I said, Mr. President, what was that watch thing all about? <laughs> and he, he, keep in mind, he and I are sitting in front of each of our television cameras on tape now. There's no audience there. This wasn't live or anything. But he kind of almost leapt at me. He said, yeah, I looked at my watch. And that proves beyond a doubt that anybody who looks at his watch on a presidential debate is not qualified to be president of the United States. Yeah. That's it. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then I said, when he calmed down, I said, well, Mr. President, uh, some people, here again, another hard-hitting follow-up question. I said, some people suggested that it indicated that you were disconnected or something, or that you were not only that, but that you were just anxious to get on with it and you wanted to know how much time was left and you didn't win. He said, you're right. He said, I want to know when this, I went, when I was looking at my watch, I want to know how much longer this crap had before it was over. <laughs> and then he says to me, and you can put that in your documentary, Jim. Now, cameras are running. <laughs> so I very, after he, you know, I very quietly said, Mr. President, we just did. 
my favorite, my favorite moment. But anyhow, the reason I asked here again, Clinton, what well, was so terrific talking about Bill Clinton was not just about his own experiences, but he, he was like, it's like shop talk with these folks. I mean, these are professional politicians. He's, you don't get to be a presidential nominee or a vice presidential nominee if, if you're a, without being really pretty good at your, at your line of work, which just means being a political candidate. And so they love talking about it, but Clinton in particular. But Clinton made the point when I asked him about the watch thing with that Bush. He said, look, it, the only reason it mattered was because it fed a presumption that was already in the wind about uh, George H.W. Bush. He said, Clinton said, hey, if I'd looked at my watch or if Perot had looked at his watch, nobody would have paid any attention. But because there was this thing already in the wind about George W. Bush, uh, you know, I didn't care about it. He, he can't run a, what was it, a grocery scanner, remember? He could, you know, and uh, so all that, so it had fed this perception. And the same thing happened with um, a debate I did moderate in 2000 with George W. Bush and uh, Al Gore. When, uh, i tell you one quick story and then I'll, I, about this, and then I'll open this thing up, uh, because I think you all probably have some questions, some really nice, friendly questions. Uh, the, uh, they had a split screen for the first time during the debates. So when I would ask, I have a rule when I moderate these things, I never look at the person who is listening to the I always talk, I always look only, in other words, if you're Bush, you want to be Bush or Gore? All right. You're Bush, and you're Gore, and, I'm, and, I'm, and, and I ask, in this case, I ask Bush a question, and I look only at Bush. Now, Gore is over here, see? and I'm not looking at Gore, okay? And, but what Gore did was, you know, remember, he did all that, you know, stuff. Came over very unpleasant. Now, the, the, the space... Is about what it is, you know. I mean, I was the closest person to the two candidates during this debate, and when the thing was over, our kid, a lot of our kids were were. Uh, uh, we have three grown daughters and and uh, grandchildren, and all that sort of stuff, and uh, s- several of them were were with uh, were with me and and Kate in uh, Boston, and we were walking out of uh, the hall when the debate was over, and Amanda, youngest daughter who is a very, very close friend of Phoebe Stein, who is from Baltimore, and she and her father, Julian, are here tonight, aren't they? Where are you? There they are. There they are right here. Anyhow, um, I don't have anything to do with anything I'm talking about. Just they're, they're just my friends. <laughs> but Phoebe and Amanda, daughter Amanda, went to school together, and they're still very close friends. Anyhow, Amanda is walking by me, walking next to me. We're walking out of the hall, and she says, Dad. Boy, that was something that Gore did. And I said, darn it, what did Gore do? What are you talking about? And she went through this, oh, he, all this sign and grimacing. She said, correctly, she said, that's going to be the story. You know, she ought to go into journalism herself. That's, that's going to be the story. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. And it, it was exactly parallel to the first presidential debate, which was in 1960 between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. The people who listened to that debate on the radio thought, thought Nixon won it hands down. People saw it on television thought Kennedy won. Same thing happened in 2000, Bush versus Gore. People who listened to that debate on the radio thought uh, Gore won that debate, no problem. People who saw it on television didn't like Gore. Here again, didn't have anything to do with what Gore said or what Bush said. They just didn't like him because he did all that stuff. And, uh, and those are the kind, and more, more recently, and then I, I, and then we'll, I really will go to questions. Uh, the last debate I moderated was 2008, the first debate between uh, uh, Barack Obama and John McCain. It was in Jackson, Mississippi. And we had some new rules. The debate commission had negotiated with it, with the, uh, with the, um, we had anything to do with the negotiation or any of that, but, but I'm, what a moderator is just either, it's, it's a, like a moderator, just she should know this for the record. It's a little bit like the old seventh grade prom question. You know, hey, Penelope, if I were in, to invite you to the prom, would you go? And that's what the debate mo- moderator, that's the way the, the invitation goes to a debate moderator. If we ask you to moderate, would you agree to enforce these rules? And the rules have already been agreed to. 
and it's a simple yes or no. You don't play games with the rules or any of that. Anyhow, the new rules said that the candidates could address each other and could ask each other questions, and that had not been allowed in most of the previous debates. And uh, so I was determined to make that happen. But for reasons that are still unexplained, because I was unable to talk to him about it, and uh, that, I'll just leave it at that, uh, John McCain didn't, play, didn't come to play. And he, you, you all may remember, he wouldn't even look at, at Obama. And I made a complete fool of myself here again in front of 100 million people trying to get him to. And finally, at a point, I kept saying, would you say that again right to, look right at Senator Obama. And finally, finally McCain said, what's the matter? You think people can't hear me? So I said, what the hell with this? You know, that experiment, that experiment is over. That hurt McCain. Because people said, what's, what's the problem with this guy? Why won't he even, won't he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't even, um, Obama was calling McCain John and uh, John and McCain was calling Obama senator, and uh, he wouldn't look at him, he wouldn't address him, and it, came, and it hurt him because, the, according to the polls and the pundits, because when that debate started, they were pretty well even, and as a result of that, uh, Obama went ahead and he never lost, uh, he never lost the lead after that uh, first debate. Now, okay, your, how are we going to do the questions and comments? Yeah, there, there's a microphone. Yes. Okay. All right, here's a, here's a gentleman okay. with a question right here. And I know what the question is before it's asked. The question is, what is Testing. my favorite place to eat in Baltimore? <laughs> uh, Mike Schaefer, Jim, thanks Mike, for coming yes, tonight. Yes, I'd like to ask you which three of the nominees you weren't able to interview. Yes, Al Gore, Ross Perot, and Lloyd Benson. Lloyd Benson had had a stroke. Finally, by the time I got around, he was sick. He had a stroke. He very much wanted to talk to me. He couldn't do it. Ross Perot did not want to talk to me under any circumstances and didn't. He's never talked about that election at any, at any, at any uh, length. In fact, I, uh, uh, there's a story in this about the book. Uh, I knew Perot as a newspaper man in, in Dallas, and I got to know him when he first started. And he and I, we, we're, not, we're not personal friends, but we were professional friends. And, and, and uh, uh, I had been a Marine. He had gone to the Naval Academy. He had a guy who worked for him. He had been, a, been, the Naval, he'd been a Marine and gone into the, been a, gone to the Naval Academy and then been a, and gone to the Marine Corps. So I had a lot of some affinity. We had a lot of, a lot of affinity, and we, and we liked each other. Unfortunately, I wrote a novel, one of my 20 novels, that none of you have read. But all that's going to change tonight, too, uh, was called The Last Debate. And it was about a presidential debate where in the old, it was a fiction, obviously. And it was about some three journalists and a moderator who kind of th- tried to throw the debate because they thought the country was going to go to hell in a handbasket if Billy Bob won or Sam, so whatever it is. Anyhow, I made up a lot of characters and press stuff. And I had a Sunday morning talk show called Perot. And uh, I described some of the things that he did, and I thought it was all in good fun. Ross Perot did not think so. He called me, and he was really angry with me, and uh, uh, hadn't talked to me since, until about 18 months ago, I was in Dallas for a library event, a fundraiser for the Dallas Public Library, and uh, Perot was there, and I was working on this debate book, so that would have been probably two years ago, I guess. At any rate, I went over to him, and I said, and he was very pleasant, and, and I was very pleasant, I said, hey, Ross, I'm working on this book, and I, I'd love to talk to you about your experiences, just about the moderating, just about your experiences uh, as a candidate in the 1992 presidential debates. That's what I'm writing about. And he says, he gave me his card, and he said, call me. So I called him. I waited three days back in Washington. I called him back in Dallas. And he said, well, here's Ross, here's the deal. You know, I thought he was going to talk to me. And he said, I don't want to talk about that. I said, yeah, but here's the deal. I don't want to talk about that. And I said, yeah, but I'm not going to talk about that. And then I asked him about, because I have some stuff in there about Stockdale. Remember, Stockdale was his uh, running mate. And, he, you know, he didn't ever talk to Stockdale. 
Dr. He forgot to tell Stockdale he was even been asked to be in the debate. Uh, I mean, it was just so. Anyhow, I wanted to get Perot's reaction because Stockdale was really upset when I talked to Stockdale. He was a great man, by the way. Jim Stockdale died a few years ago, won the Medal of Honor for what he did uh, in a Vietnam prison camps. Um, but at any rate, and he didn't talk to me, uh, and he didn't talk to me, and that's the end of that. And uh, but on Al Gore, uh, I don't know why. Al, and we did everything. Uh, every, we went through every connection we, that we had to try to talk to Al Gore. He was very pleasant about it, but he just, it just never came off. My own theory is, which I proffer in the book, is that 2000 will always be a big open sore in this man's life, that election. And that there's no way he could talk about the debates without talking about that. And that he has not talked about that, and someday he will. He'll do it on his own terms, in his own book, and why in the hell should he talk to me about it? That's my own spin on, uh, on, on, on that. So I told you a lot more than you asked, but uh, Robert McNeil, my great friend and former partner, used to say to me, you know, Jim, if you're ever a guest on our program, we'd never have you back because your answers are so damn long. But <laughs> sorry about that. Right here. Whoop, we're going to give you a mic. Jack? This is my assistant, Jack. He comes with me wherever I go. Thanks so much, Jack. Uh, and Mr. Lear, thank you so much for coming to Baltimore and, and supporting the Pratt. Um, I really wanted to ask you a question about the great one-liners that have happened in pres presidential debates, like, um, well, there you go again, and, oh, I knew Jack Kennedy, and you're no Jack Kennedy. But instead, I'd like like to ask you, what is your favorite fictional novel? You are a wonderful man. But I will, because you're such a wonderful person, I will answer the one-liner thing this way. I asked each one of those, I didn't, wasn't able to ask uh, uh, Benson about his Jack Kennedy line, but I did talk to a lot of people who did talk to him about it, and he always claimed that it just came to him. I talked to some people who worked for Benson, and in the pre-app, the, the prep for the, in the pre-debate uh, thing, um, somebody said, hey, you know, uh, uh, Quayle, Dan Quayle's been saying to everybody, hey, uh, I had as much experience, if not more experience than Jack Kennedy did, because they would knock him. Uh, Quayle because he didn't have experience and his answer was I had more experience with Jack Kennedy when he was elected president and so one of, of uh, Benson's guys said you might want to think about using some line hey man you're no, uh, you're no Jack Kennedy so, so everybody has their own memories about this I talked to Ronald Reagan and I specifically asked about each one of those there you go again uh, I don't want to use my opponent's youthfulness against him that he did on the Mondale. And every, he said, oh, no, that just came to me. Those just came to me. I said, oh, yeah, sure. Everybody has their own memory. And every, I went through every one of the candidates, and there was only one of all of the people I interviewed who, who, who copped out. And, of course, that was Bill Clinton. I said, I said, well, did you, did you in your preparation for debates, did you work on one? I said, God, yes. We worked on all kinds of one-liners. And I did my best to try to work them in, you know. Sometimes I couldn't do it and all this. <laughs> now, my favorite fiction book was, my favorite fiction book was, is, was, is White Widow, which is about a bus driver, a Continental Trailways bus driver, in the 1950s, who drove between Houston and Corpus Christi, and he had a love affair with one of his passengers, a bus driver lingo, a beautiful woman traveling alone is a white widow. So this woman traveling alone, he, this bus driver, his name is Jack, he has, I don't know why I told you that, but at any rate, he has a mad love affair with this white widow who's a passenger on his bus, drove back and forth between Victoria and Corpus Christi. But the love affair was only in his mind. 
but it has real-world implications and all of that. And there's some people uh, uh, who, are, who are pretty close to maybe, may, you know, pretty close to maybe making a movie out of it. But I don't know why I'm saying this, my favorite novel, but um, they're all wonderful. <laughs> yes, sir. Right here. Good to have you in Baltimore. Uh, my name's Brian Alexander. Brian? I just had a question. Uh, where were you at when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was in Hyde Park in his last moments, Jack Kennedy in Dallas, and Martin Luther King in Memphis? Were those events moments for you? Well, of the three, uh, the Kennedy assassination, I was in Dallas. I was working for the Dallas Times-Herald. I was part of the team that covered uh, the covered. The Kennedy, the I'll tell you a quick. <laughs> I'm doing it again. I'll tell you a story about it. That in fact, I'm writing a novel based on this story. That it's taken me all this time to kind of get my arms around it and be able to do the story, do the thing. But it's in fiction terms. Here's the real story. I worked for the Dallas Times Herald, the afternoon paper. Uh, I was the federal reporter, the federal beat reporter. The Kennedys were going to be in Dallas maybe two or three hours. So, and it was right on our deadline, midday, it was a luncheon. So our entire staff, city staff, was involved in covering the Kennedys' visit to Dallas. My assignment that day was to cover the Kennedy arrival at Love Field, Dallas Love Field, and stay there until they came back and report on their departure. The newspaper, my cheap newspaper, I couldn't believe it, paid to have an open telephone line set up on a table right outside the fence, right where Air Force One was going to come because they were going to, they were going to land literally right on our main edition deadline. So it had been raining that morning in Dallas. I got to Love Field, I don't know, I don't know, 8.30. Uh, it was all, all of it was supposed to start around 9.30, something like that. And I was checking everything, and uh, it had stopped raining. Uh, and I was checking the telephone line and it, back to the rewrite desk. And all I had to do was pick up the phone and, it, and the rewrite man answered. So I picked up the phone, the rewrite guy, and we're checking the phone. Everything was fine. And the rewrite man says to me, he said, Jim, are, are they going to have the bubble top on the presidential limousine? And I said, well, I couldn't see because they had, they had the cars that were going to be, the, the limousines that were going to be in the, in the uh, motorcade were parked down a ramp that I couldn't see. And I said, well, I can't see. And he said, well, would you mind going down there and seeing and checking it out because I'm going to be writing under deadline pressure and it just for, just like to know whether the bubble top is going to be up. Because the bubble, I had written a story as a federal, I had written a lot of advanced stories. In fact, I had written the story of the motorcade route that was in Lee Harvey Oswald's effects uh, in his apartment, you know, it, uh, and anyhow. Uh, I had written about the bubble top. They might have it up. They might, depending on whether it was the weather and all that, whether it was raining or not. Anyhow, I put the phone down, went to the, lot, to the, the, the top of the ramp, and um, fortunately, because I was a federal reporter, the guy who was standing there at the top of the ramp was the local head of the C Secret Service office in Dallas, and he knew who I was. And I looked down, and I could see the cars. There were about five or six cars, and, and I saw the presidential limousine, and the bubble top was up on the car. So I said to the agent, I said, uh, Rewrite wants to know about the bubble top. Are you going to keep it up or what? And he, right in front of me, he looks up and he says, well, it is clear. And he yells at another agent who's got a two-way radio, and he says, what's, what's it like? Check downtown. See what the weather's like. So this guy goes, warm, blah, 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 and he says, clear downtown. So he says, with me standing there, he turns to the other agents and he says, take off, lose the bubble top, is what he actually said. Lose the bubble top. Now, the bubble top is a piece of, it's six pieces of plastic that are put together with, with snaps and all that sort of stuff. So they started, and I went back to rewrite and said, okay, the bubble top's going to be gone. And assassinate, I, my assignment, as I say, was to stay in Love Field. And uh, I'm, I go back into the terminal. The Kennedys have come and gone. The motorcade has left. And by the time I get in, I have barely been inside you know, a few minutes, and the word comes there had been shots fired and all of that. And how I got into the got into the, uh, the uh, to the uh, city desk on the phone, and they said, "Go to Love Field." I mean, to uh, Parkland Hospital. And I got there just as they announced Kennedy was dead. Then they said, oh, 
go to the police station. They've just arrested somebody. That was a short time later. And I stayed there uh, the rest of the day and night. Midnight that night, this is midnight, November 22nd, 1963, the police, the police station was chaos beyond anything I could ever imagine or replicate again. I, there were people, there were all kinds of agents and cops and reporters with all kinds of accents, and all of us were in a, a continuing state of, oh my God. And there was sadness, and there was grief, and then there was everybody trying to find the story. What the hell happened? I mean, it was just unbelievable. Couldn't believe it had happened. This was the first assassination, remember. This was the very beginning. And nobody could believe it. It happened there, in Dallas, and you know, in all of this. And at midnight, I had heard, and I knew, that the police chief was having a, a, a meeting in his office up on the second floor with some other law enforcement types. And so I went up there, and the door was closed, and I knew there were some people in there. I didn't know who they were. And I just stayed. There were some other reporters. I wasn't the only one. There were four or five of us waiting outside the door. And, and after a while, the door opened, and out came five men in suits, and one of them was this Secret Service agent, the guy who had put down the bomb. And he sees me. Now, he was an old man. He was probably 42 years old. And he comes, he sees me, he comes over to me, and the tears were in his eyes, and he said, oh, Jim, if I just hadn't taken down the bubble top. And then I'm like, I said, oh, my God, if I just hadn't asked the question, if, then, if what if, what if, what if, everybody, all, there were thousands of what ifs. There always are with everything like this. The fact is, the, the bubble top was not bulletproof. It was just very thin, one-quarter-inch plastic. It was designed just for inclement weather. But there were a lot of people, who, including some Secret Service agents I discovered when I was being, we began to work on this book, who thought it was bulletproof. A lot of people thought it was bulletproof. The theory, there are th- two theories about it. That, that, if, that Oswald might have thought it was bulletproof, and if he'd seen it, he might not have even taken the shots. Or if he had taken the shots... It, even though it wasn't bulletproof, it could have deflected something. There were little metal rims where you put the six pieces together. It could have deflected something or whatever. There was another theory that if he had fired the shots, uh, it would have splintered into shards and everybody in there would have been killed. Uh, not only the president, but Mrs. Kennedy, the Connollys, the, probably the two Secret Service agents, whatever. Nobody paid any attention. I did one story about it as a reporter then, and, and, and they barely talked about it in the Warren Commission or whatever, and uh, uh, that'll teach you to ask a question. Yes? Uh, hello. Hi. Happy Thursday. Um, Happy I was what? Thursday. Thursday. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I was wondering, I don't know any other moderator except for you. And how do I keep the television on now that you're not going to be there? You know what I would do? I'd just go to radio and forget it. (laughs) I mean, who in the hell needs pictures? Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Over here. I was wondering if, in the sequence of debates, if it makes, if the first has the biggest impact, have you ever seen, like, a third debate be a game changer in terms of what people think of the presidential candidates? That's a super question. And the answer is, for the most part, it's not only the first debate, it's the first 20 minutes of the first debate that has the biggest audience. And then people kind of settle down. If there are other issues and they, uh, they, they come alive a little bit, uh, by the time the third debate, the audience, there's still a huge audience and there's still huge interest, but it's a, it, you're absolutely right. The first debate is that's the, oh, that's the magic, that's the oh my God moment. And the other ones are uppercase oh, oh my God, and then from then on, it's lowercase. <laughs> Sir. 
Thank you. I thought you were having a little left bias when you were going to that side of the room. <clears throat> See, everybody's a critic. See, you know, what did I tell you? What did I tell then, you about criticism? Now that, now that I have your attention, I'll tell you my last name is Clinton. <clears throat> Will you still talk to me? My last name is Clinton. What's your first name? Not Bill. John. John Clinton? Yes, sir. Were you the guy that... that uh, I wasn't there. I'm sticking to my story. What about... Uh, were, you, were you related to D. Whit Clinton? The guy who invented no. the steam engine? Don't think so. And I don't think I'm related I mean, to Bill. I don't think so. No. I mean, if you were, if you were related to, to no. D. Whit Clinton, no. you would know. No. No. Are you related to Bill Clinton? Uh, he wasn't born a Clinton, so I've got to do a little more research. Are you related to the founder of Clinton, Missouri, a town in uh, southwest, southeast of Kansas can, City? What, can I go up there and you come down here if you want to ask the questions? Well, this is, this is, is the Texas way to handle it. I understand. Okay. I understand. Yes, sir, Mr. Clinton, what's your question? I also teach political science, and so when I go back and tell my students this semester, I had a chance to meet you, and I'm going to urgently read the book. Good. As I did. Thank you very much. Next yeah. question. Yeah. Ah! No, no, sir. Go ahead. It's, it's my favorite book on debates that I've ever read. Um, Everybody's a wise guy. Too. No, no. I should stop. I don't think it's they've, ever been, yeah, yes, they've all asked the questions I had at the top of my list. So, you talk about a 1990. So this is what? Sixth or seventh on your list? Uh, eighth or ninth, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um, 1996, Bill Clinton, Bob Dole, the character issue. Yes. Everybody knew about Bill Clinton. If my memory is correct, he did the CBS interview that year? No. That was after. Yes. Okay. But they still were all talking about Bill and what he'd done in Arkansas. Right. You covered it well in oh, here. Oh, yeah. They had, I'm sorry. They had done the CBS interview. I thought so. The, you're talking about the 60 Minutes interview. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The, yes, sir, Mr. Clinton. The, yes. Steve, the Steve Croft interview. The Steve Croft Steve interview. Croft interview. Okay. You were right, I was wrong. Thank you. Um, you're, still well, you're still well ahead of me. So, um, Everybody knew about Bill's thing. But not many people knew about the story about Bob Dole. And you mentioned it in here, and you, you cover it very sweetly and get on with it. Um, why did that never get to the front page? Why did Dole never jump on Clinton. Why did Clinton jump on Dole? Why didn't you ask something about it? Can you talk about that incident, please? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no. The, the, the story had, was not on the front page. It was, uh, it was the Washington Post and a couple others were working on it at the time of the debate. But I didn't know that. If I had known that, I would have asked about it. I think. I think I would. Uh, keep, in, keep in mind the story about Dole was he had an affair uh, many, many years ago. Uh, he was married. He was separated from his wife. The woman he was having the affair with was single. And, uh, uh, and uh, the Post made the decision not to run it. And, uh, but Dole knew about the story. And the point that I made in the book was that maybe Dole might have gone at the character issue a little at all. He didn't go at it at all. He, the woman issue, he might have if he hadn't known that story was in the works. I don't know. I honestly don't know. And you... Question. One more question? One more question. One more question. This better be good. Roswell? Wait, wait, give it, let's give it, to, let's give it to, to, uh, to her. Yes, right here, because it's closer. <coughs> We didn't get any questions from anybody in the back. I'm now going to be accused of only talking to front runners. <laughs> well, since you clearly have worked with, known both Obama and Hillary Clinton, what do you think of the ideas that are now being floated that she become his running mate? Did you hear that question in the back of the room? Yeah, well, I'll just repeat it. The, the question was, which of the American language books by H.L. Mencken. <laughs> See, that's a pundit question. No, I, have, I think it's very interesting. The chances of that happening on a scale of 1 to 10, 
are somewhere in there. <laughs> it's never going to happen. The, I started to say it's off the record. That would be absurd on the face of it. But I don't want this to sound like a pundit. But it's never going to happen is as long as it is perceived that uh, Barack Obama has a better than 50-50 chance of being reelected. This would be a move designed to stop some severe bleeding and a, what would look, but for, I mean, for assuming that Perry is the nominee, uh, that Perry is going to win, and uh, that, or, or was the potential nominee, or something like, I think, it's, I think it would be, if it happens, it would happen as a uh, last-ditch measure, and you'd have to be, it'd have to be a last-ditch situation for it to happen. That's my view of it. That Nanika will get you exactly four cents. Hey, that was a great last question. Well, it was. You know, the, 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 the problem with last questions, usually, and I usually don't take last questions, I always say, well, it's time, we got time for one more last one question, and then say, no, on second thought, we don't, because somebody, it's usually the last question that somebody hands up a piece of paper and says, Mr. Lair, I have in front of me a document that proves you've stolen the last five automobiles that you have driven or something, you know, and it, or how can there be peace in our time when, you know, when so forth and so on and then this and that, and you, you, you beat the odds, I pre- which I appreciate very much. And by I appreciate you all very much. When I talked about supporting uh, independent bookstores, I also want you to understand that if I didn't support public libraries, I would not be here, and you would not be here. If there were not public libraries, I know I would not be here, not because of the venue, but because all the books I read from the time I was born until the time I graduated from college came from somebody's public library. And public... You are involved by supporting the Pratt Library. You are involved in God's work. And he and she, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Lair. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. You can still purchase your books, and Mr. Lair will be signing books right here. Thank you so much for coming.